Awesome. Well, hey, good morning. My name is Nick Cadoon. I'm one of the pastors here at Airdrie Alliance. If I haven't met you yet, that's who I am, and uh, I don't know you, so that was awkward. Um, no, come, come, come and say hi. Really do. Come and say hi after the service. We want to get to know every person here, make every person feel like this is a place where they could call home. So please come and introduce yourselves. All right. Well, hey, this morning... We're continuing in our pursuit series in which we've been studying the life of one of the greatest kings that ever lived. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? King David. That's right. The man after God's heart. Right? Over the past few months, we've kind of taken a break on and off of this series. This is like part two of our series and the second message. And you know, over the past eight messages or Sundays, we've covered this, this series. We've talked a ton about his life, right? We've talked about you know, David's humble beginnings as a shepherd, how he was ordained or anointed by, by that prophet Samuel, how he came to power later as king of Israel, right? that rising superpower of the ancient Near East. We talked about his, his military genius. Right? We talked about how David was the giant killer, how he was you know, victorious in every battle that he fought in. What was that song that they used to sing? Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands, Right? And we've talked about his experience as a fugitive, living life on the, on the run, running from his father-in-law and his predecessor, King Saul. And then last week, we looked at his passion, at his zeal for the Lord. David was a worshiper. His, his life, he, he lived in such a way that he was, he was always in this relentless pursuit of the Father. Right? If we could sum his life up in like a single sentence or a statement, I think it would be this. That David was a, a man who loved the Lord more than anything else. This is, this is who he was. And surely this is one of our greatest learnings from his life, right? That God alone is worthy of our greatest pursuit. Now, I've often gone back to David's words as we see in Psalm 63.3. Where he penned this, he said, Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. Because your love, God, is, is better than life itself. I will, I, I can't not but glorify you. I just have to do it. I love that. This was David's heart. He, he really was a man in relentless pursuit of the Father. And, and yet, and, and yet, as we're about to see this morning, he was also a man of deep shame and guilt and regret. If you have your Bible with you this morning or your iPhone, Come with me to 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. Again, that's 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. The, the words will also be on the screen a little later on, or you can grab a Bible from the back. And as you head there, I just want to give us you know, a brief synopsis of where, of where we're going this morning. While throughout this series, we've been you know, covering really the, kind of the highlights of David's life, right? The highlight reel, those wins, the successes, like those, those touchdown victory dance moments of life. You know what I'm talking about? There's also, thank you, there's also this, this other side, this other you know, darker side of David's story that we also need to look at as well. You see, just like you and I, David, while, while still a man after God's heart, he was also a man prone to the deceitfulness of sin, deception, lust, moral failure, murder, Shame, condemnation, regret. You know, while this string of words might sound like the plot of a, of a Hollywood thriller, this is actually a, a snapshot of the later years of this great king's life. You see, while there's much to learn from David's successes, there's also much to learn about his failures. 
You see, because it's here in those broken and regrettable moments of his life, it's here in the terrible aftermath of sin and its, and its devastating wake where we find ourselves, isn't it? The big idea this morning, friends, it's quite simple, it's this, that while sin devastates, and, and it really does, while sin devastates, God restores Right? This, is, this, really is, this is the good news of the, of the gospel of Jesus, that, that God so loved the world that he sent his, his one and only son to rescue, to, to redeem, to restore us, a sinful people, back to himself. Our God has come that we might be restored from the devastation of our sin. For he longs to lift us up out of the, the sin and shame, just like he did for David and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Because that's, that's who he is. He's the God who restores. This is his heart. So are we ready to jump into the text this morning? Second Samuel 11, starting at verse one, allow me to read for us the word of the Lord. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab, the the commander of his army, out with all the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. It's interesting how he doesn't just give the genealogy. Hey, this is her dad. He also says, hey, David, this is her husband. She's married. And David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. Here's David, right? One thing leads to another. Bathsheba's pregnant and he's nervous, right? David was confronted that day with the reality of the consequences of sin. And while he likely believed this one-time offense, right? This this thing committed under the the secrecy in the dark of of night, that it would remain hidden forever and far away from the history books. Friends, there's a reason why we're, we're talking about this story this morning. You see, the reality of sin is this regardless of how big or how small the sin in our lives is, or whether it's in dishonesty or gossip or, or theft or lust, or in the case of, of David here, adultery, the reality is this, that sin, all sin, it produces devastating results. It just does. That's, that's just how it works. Sin produces devastating results. What, what, is, what does Paul say in Romans chapter 6, verse 23? He says the, the wages, the reward for sin is what? It's death, pain, sorrow, humiliation, dishonor, destruction. These are, the, these are the byproducts of sin, friends. And for David, the result was no different. So how did, how did David end up here? How, how did this man known as the one in pursuit of the, of the heart of the father, how did he find himself here of all places in the aftermath of this offense? How does this happen? And then the question I've been asking myself this week is, how do you come back from something like this? How do you come back? Now, I want to I assure you this morning 
That no matter the the weight or the gravity of the sin, no matter the, the grievousness of the offense against God or others, no matter how far gone you believe you are, man, there's always a way back. Right, always. There's always a way back. For our God is the one who loves to restore his children. That's who he is. So how did David end up here? One of, the, one of the first things that kind of pops out to me from the, the text is this idea of the deceitfulness of sin. <clears throat> it's already been said, but allow me to say it again. David was a man like you or I who, who, who really was prone to sin's deceit. Now, what do I mean by this? It's pretty simple. The, the enemy's a jerk, isn't he? Right? He's a jerk, and he especially designed sin to be as enticing as possible. Now, now maybe it's just me. Maybe uh, you're going to kind of think, oh, man, Nick's a creep. We shouldn't listen to him anymore. But uh, hang, hang with me, okay? But uh, have you ever noticed how, how good sin looks? Just me? Anyone else? All right. A couple people hiding in the back, yeah. All right, but have you noticed this? Right, like sin... It looks good, right? It's enticing, isn't it? And surely this is what James, right, the brother of Jesus, wrote in his letter to the church. Chapter 1, verse 14, he says, But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Sin is enticing. It looks good. It's been designed this way in order that it would deceive us. Why? Because as the one whose goal it is to, to steal, to kill, to destroy It's the mission of Satan to inflict as much damage upon us as possible. And friends, sin is as devastating as it gets. It's funny how clever the the enemy is, or how how clever he thinks he is, isn't it? How how well, you know, he works exceptionally hard to entice us to sin. One thing he's never going to do is give us that full picture, right? Do you know what I'm talking about? Right? He, he coaxes us to, 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 to sin. He says, it's going to look good, feel good, do something, something wondrous for you. But he says, he'll, ne- he'll never give you the full picture of, of the end result. He'll never say, hey, hey, buddy, go ahead and look at porn, even though it's going to ruin your marriage in the long run. Or, hey, steal that car, even though you might end up in juvie or jail. Hey, sleep with this person. And lucky you, you get to contract a, a lifelong debilitating disease. Drink and then drive home just a few blocks and end up killing an innocent individual. Right? He never does this. He doesn't give us the, the, the full picture of what our actions, our sinful actions, will lead to. And it's because his, it's his intent to entice us into action, to deceive us into committing you know, that sinful offense against God, against ourselves, against those around us. This is the way that sin has been designed, it, it's, it looks good. It looks enjoyable and it's enticing. It looks as though it'll somehow, you know, magically solve that plethora of issues we're facing at home or at the office, right? It, it, it somehow, it looks like it will fulfill that deepest need, you know, deep in our souls, that desperation in each of us for, for community, for relationship, for belonging, for love. It looks good and that's the danger of it. Right? It promises to delight. Hey, David, here's this woman, man. She's hanging out in her backyard in the hot tub. Looks good, doesn't she? I know you want it, and guess what? So does she. Sin promises to delight, but it only delivers devastation and destruction and death. And this is why we need to be vigilant to stand on guard against these kinds of schemes of the enemy. Another tactic the enemy uses is to convince us that our, our choices or our, our actions or our sin, that they affect only us, right? 
that, that, that they only affect me. That if I tell this lie or, or keep this thing hidden from my, my spouse or my boss or my kids, that it's only me who's going to pay for it. Or about this? All right, if, I, if I go to that website, or if I, if I flirt with that individual at the bar when I'm working out of town for the week, that no one else will bear the, the burden or the consequences of my, my sin. Just, just me. All right? Sin's pretty selfish, isn't it? It's selfish. And I say that because it it allows us or makes us or forces us to take our eyes off of him, our eyes off of those around us and just put them right here on me. It's all about me. What can I get out of this? How will this make me feel? And this too is a manifestation of the deceitfulness of sin. It convinces us that our actions are our own and that it's only ever gonna affect us. You know, sadly, I, I think that we've allowed ourselves to, to falsely believe that sin is this personal thing, right? That when done in secret, which most of it is, isn't it? That when done in secret, no one's gonna know, no one needs to know, because as long as it remains cloaked in that shadow of deception, that its consequences will just prove to be non-existent, but that's, that's not how it works. Friends, I'm telling you, there's no such thing as private sin. Private sin is not private It's working to erode at our integrity, at our relationships, at our heart and soul. Instead, sin, all sin, it produces devastating consequences. And these these consequences are felt not just by you or me, but by those in proximity around us. Going going back to the text, 2 Samuel 11, listen to these words. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him, Uriah, to David. Can you see how the effects of sin so easily spread? So not only are are David and Bathsheba, right, kind of feeling the effects of this one night stand, but now David just starts dragging other people into it. Hey, Joab, nephew, commander of my army, how how about you take care of this guy Uriah? And And then Uriah, right, this innocent man, the husband of David's new mistress, what happens to him? Man, he's murdered and part of this elaborate cover-up. If you read the story too, other people are murdered along with Uriah just, just to help David kind of save face. The effects of sin are never just felt by me or you. Man, they're felt by those around us. And they're also felt kind of throughout the generations. Did you know this? It's not just me, it's not just those in proximity, but it's actually those kind of maybe even years, decades down the road. Just, just looking back at kind of this, this story of David, 2 Samuel 12, chapter 13, chapter 16, we see how stemming from that affair that there's these consequences of David, they're far-reaching. Right? David and Bathsheba's child dies. David's son, Amnon, after you know, seeing his dad get away with this this, this moment with Bathsheba, he then rapes his sister Tamar. And then after he does that, David's other son Absalom kills Amnon, his brother, because he raped his sister. And then, and then Absalom goes and he has sex publicly with all of his dad's concubines after dethroning his father and saying, yo, I'm king now. Do you, do you see the, 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 the far reaches of sin? It's never just about me it devastates those around us. E- even, Scripture says, to the third and fourth generation. It's dangerous. 
So where, where did David, you know, the man after God's heart, where did he go wrong? How did, how did he allow himself to be so deceived that night that he actually you know, did what he did? Because let's be honest, maybe it's not a, a, a adultery or an affair, but man, we've been in his shoes, haven't we? I know I have. I think part of the answer of, kind of you know, how, how did David get here, I think part of the answer is this, he let his guard down. Or in other words, the words of Warren Wiersbe, he laid aside his armor. Going back to the, the story, 2 Samuel 11, verse 1, it starts like this, in spring, at the time when kings go to war, what happened? David remained in Jerusalem. He stayed home. You see, David laid aside his armor rather than being at war with his men like he ought to have been. Rather than you know, standing firm on the battlefield ready for the fight, what's he doing? Man, he's laying in his bed. He laid aside his armor. He let his guard down. He, he placed himself in a, in a position where he just shouldn't have been. He got lazy, idle, apathetic to sin. And, and he also he had no accountability over him. No one checking in on him from time to time. No one asking you know, those tough questions like, how's your soul? Man, where's sin knocking on your door? How are you ensuring that you stand firm against the, the schemes of the, the enemy rather than giving in to temptation and sin? Where did David go wrong? How could he find himself here of all places? He laid aside his armor. And ultimately it led to his demise and so I just, I just want to ask you, where have you laid aside your armor? Where have you, whether intentionally or, or not, where have you gotten lazy? Where have you gotten apathetic? Where, where have you put yourself in, in a situation where you just know you shouldn't be? Is it in your thought life? Are you allowing your mind to wander, right? Are you entertaining thoughts of fantasy, thoughts that dishonor other people or dishonor God? Oh, what about your relationships, man, at work, at school, maybe even here at church? Are you a little too close to someone who's not your spouse? Are you a little too honest, too, too vulnerable, too unguarded? Man, there's danger here. You've laid aside your armor. Or, or what about what you do for fun, right? Maybe it's when you're out of town for work or on vacation. You know, maybe you just like to let loose a little bit, right? Blow off some steam and you find yourself in those moments kind of maybe drinking a little bit too much. Maybe taking some recreational drugs. And you say, it's just, it's just for fun, right? It's just to kind of help me relax a little bit. It's no harm done. Friend, I'm telling you, you've laid aside your armor. And you're now vulnerable to the attack of the enemy. So where, where have you laid aside your armor? Where, where is sin knocking at your door? And where are you entertaining it? I, I guarantee you, if you don't put that armor back on and do it quickly, man, that this is an area that the enemy is going to use in your life, just like he did for David, right? And he's going to bring devastation of sin into your life. Yeah, as a side note, I, I want to go back just for a sec to that accountability piece Right, David, as king, he actually had no one over him or watching you know, over his shoulder, more or less, that was keeping him accountable. You know, thank God for, for Nathan the prophet. Right? We thank God for him that he was able to come to David and say, hey, I see this. God sees this in your life. But other than, than that, he had no accountability. And I, I just want to say, you know, if you don't have someone in your life that you have given permission to, to hold you fiercely accountable, 
that, man, that's dangerous ground. Really, it is. If you don't have this kind of person, and, and let me just say this, it needs to be in addition to your spouse. My wife is awesome. I, I confess things to my wife, but I need some men, some males that I can really go deep with, that I can be transparent and vulnerable with. And so if you don't have that kind of person in your life or that group of people, man, I'm just saying for you, your homework today is to go and find one. Find someone. Get on the phone. Jump on Facebook. Find someone who you know is a godly person. Find someone who, who you know cares about you and loves you. Someone that you love. Someone that you know will ask you those hard-to-ask questions and truly, honestly hold you accountable. Find that person and then ask them, invite them, give them permission to speak into your life, to you know, unashamedly look over your shoulder and to journey with you honestly and transparently as you pursue the Father in purity of, of word and deed and thought. You know, just this week, I had this kind of check-in with my own accountability group. We hung out at a, a little church out by uh, Callaway Park, and uh, we did just this, man. We, 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 we hung out with each other. We asked the hard questions. We confessed those uncomfortable details. We, we bared our souls. We, we shared our deepest, darkest secrets, and then we prayed for and loved one another, and then we vowed to continue doing this as a regular practice for the sake of our, ourselves, our marriages, our families, and our churches back home. I just encourage you, man, you got, you got to have this in your life. It's so important. If you don't have an accountability person, find one. Find one. Don't get caught off guard like David. Don't, don't get caught without your armor. Instead, be, be fitted with the, the armor of God. Right, the, the belt of truth around your waist, the breastplate of righteousness, your feet fitted with the readiness of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, helmet of salvation, sword of the spirit. Put your armor on. Be wise. Stand firm. Be on guard. Be ready for battle. And then when it comes, man, when it comes, fight like your life is depending on it because guess what? It is. It is. Finally, where did, where did David go wrong? Right? How did, how did he, he find himself here with Bathsheba? The answer, in the face of temptation, David lingered rather than run. He entertained lustful thoughts rather than excuse himself from the scenario altogether. You see, what we do in those initial moments when confronted with sin and temptation those initial moments, that will determine the outcome, whether we stand victorious in Christ or whether we succumb to defeat and despair. It's those initial moments. And I don't know about you, but man, time and time again in my life, I've found myself saying like, oh no, what have I done? I've made a huge, terrible mistake, right? And it's all because I, I, I lingered <laughs> and I didn't run. Listen to these words from the prophet Amos Listen to what he says about evil and, and temptation and sin. Amos 5, verse 14, do what is good and run from evil so that you may live. Then the Lord, the God of heaven's armies, will be your helper just as you have claimed. Do what is good, man, run from evil. Or, or what about these words from the apostle Paul, right? 2 Timothy 2.22, Paul speaking to his spiritual son, Right, what does he write? He says, flee, run, escape, man, get out of there. Flee the evil desires of youth. 
and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a, out of a pure heart. We're actually called to run from sin. And I think so often we kind of think that that's an act of cowardice, don't we? I know I just said kind of stand firm, right? But it's actually a military technique to run away. It's called retreat, right? And it's smart. Sometimes it actually saves the battle. And I'm saying that when it comes to Scripture, we're called to, to run from sin. And friends, I'm telling you, this isn't cowardice. It's actually called courage. It's called courage. It takes courage to run from sin. It takes courage to say no to sin, right? It takes courage to leave the conversation. Courage to put an end to the flirting and the texting. It takes courage to, to, to leave the relationship or to confess to a spouse, to stand up for what you believe and know to be true and right and holy. Man, this takes courage. It takes courage to run from sin. It's not cowardice. It's actually one of the most courageous and brave things we can do. And this should be our, our response every time we're faced with temptation. And I'm just saying, if, you, if you're not going to hear it from me, man, hear it, hear it from David and his example. When sin is knocking at your door, don't, don't entertain it. Don't linger. Man, don't look twice. Don't look a third time. Don't, don't wait around, you know, just to, to see what happens. Don't do it. Man, turn and run and save yourself. Run away from sin and run right into the arms of, uh, of Jesus, the Savior, the one of grace, and the one of restoration. So how, how do you come back from something like this? Again, David's stories with adultery, but we're, we're talking about kind of sin and mistake and failure altogether today. How do you come back from, from failure? How do you come back from these moments of regret? Well, how did David come back? Because he did. He came back from this moment. We've got to ask ourselves how, what, what happened, what did he do? The first thing he did was he got honest. He got honest, brutally honest. And without any justification for his actions, without pulling any punches on the delivery of this, you know, this full disclosure, life confession moment, man, he simply admitted his sin before the Lord. And he confessed. And then he repented and he turned away from these sinful actions. And one of the most simple, yet raw and honest confessions of his life, David, upon being confronted by the prophet Nathan, right, saying, David, you are the man. This is your sin, Right, what does David say? 2 Samuel 12, 13. I have sinned. I've sinned. I've done something terrible and, and detestable and evil in the sight of the Lord, man. I've not only sinned against this woman and her husband, I've not only sinned against you know, these, these people that I unwillingly dragged into the, the mess of my choices, I've not only sinned against my family and myself, I've sinned against the Lord. Psalm 32, 5. Then I acknowledged my sin, writes David, and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And this is what he did. I can't hide in the shadows any longer, he says. I can't run anymore. I can't fake it any longer. I can't pretend like everything's okay because I know Man, I know that's not. And I need to be fully honest. So here it is, Lord. Here it is, Nathan. Here, here it is, 
world, I have sinned. So how did David you know, begin making his way back to the Lord from that moment of failure? Man, he got honest. And his honesty was the result of a broken spirit before the Lord, a brokenness before God. Listen to these words of David from Psalm 51. Psalm 51, verse 17. Right, this is the psalm that he actually wrote after being confronted by Nathan. He says this, My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. His open, his unguarded admission of sin, friends, it stemmed from a, a broken and contrite spirit. And truly, this is the first step of restoration. This is something that God delights in, doesn't he? He delights when we're honest with him. He, he wants us to, you know, to walk in the light as he is in the light. He wants us to confess our sins to him and to others. And I say others, not just because of we want to shame you all the more. No. Because when we confess to those around us, we're actually held accountable for our actions. And we are all the more to not do again what we just did. So we need to confess. We've got to be honest. You see, there's no freedom without forgiveness, no forgiveness without repentance, and there's no repentance without true and honest confession. And as David learned... If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us. He'll cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So how did David come back from his failure? He got honest. He confessed. He repented before the Lord. And then he also claimed God's forgiveness and restoration over his life. Listen to these words from David in Psalm 51. What does he say? Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all of my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean, he says. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are my Savior. He's saying, God, I know this is who you are. I I know you're the God who forgives and and restores, and so I'm I'm claiming those promises for myself. Because apart from you, I can do nothing. I'm stuck down here. But Lord, I know that you're faithful and good and that you will lift me up in your kindness. He's claiming these promises of God for himself. And what David so beautifully understood here, friends, is that God wants us to be healed. He wants us to be forgiven. He wants us to be redeemed and restored. He's so good. And he's not content seeing us where we are. He's not content with us living in, in sin and, and secrecy and deception. He wants us to be free. He wants to restore us, not just to where we were before we did whatever it is that we did. He actually wants to restore us for something better. Restore us to something better. And that's his kindness. That's his grace. That's his love. And it begins, yes, by getting honest before him. But it also takes place as we, as we claim for ourselves those beautiful promises of his word. Did you know that he delights to pardon and to forgive? He delights to extend grace and mercy to those in need. Did you know that he is the remover of our sin? 
He's the cleanser of our souls. Man, he is the lifter of our heads. He paid the greatest cost, the cost of his son's blood, so that you and, and that I would be set free from the shackles of sin and shame. And did you know, did you know that he doesn't condemn you? Did you know that he's not ashamed of you? Did did you know that he doesn't look at you any differently because of what you've done, but rather he is waiting even now, like the father that he is, with, with arms open wide, and he is waiting to receive back to himself that which was lost. Right? He leaves the 99, and he goes after the one. This is who he is. He's the God who forgives and restores, and he's he's longing to do that for us right now. But we need to believe it. We gotta get honest with him, get on our knees before him, confess, and then take hold of his goodness and say, God, I want that to be true. I need that to be true for me right now. You see, our sin doesn't define us, but rather his grace does, amen? Amen. Amen. I want to read a quote for you guys. It's kind of old school language, but get ready because it's going to punch you in the gut, okay? (laughs) All right. Penitent soul, he writes, dare to believe in, in the instantaneous forgiveness of sins. You have only to utter the confession to find it interrupted with the outbreak of the Father's love. As soon as the words of penitence leave your lips, they are met by the hurrying assurance of love that while it hates sin, it has never ceased to yearn over the prodigal. That's beautiful. You are more loved than you know, more precious in his his sight than you know, and he is waiting for you right now to begin that, that work of restoration. He wants to restore you, friends, not to where you were, but to something better, something, something greater, something more valuable to him than you've ever known. And so I ask you today, will you, will you choose to believe in the goodness of God? Will you choose to take hold of those promises of who he is and what he wants to do in your heart and soul right now? And will you allow him to lead you to wherever he wants to lead you as he transforms you radically to something beautiful, something redeemed. I promise you that he's good. I promise you he's good. I've experienced it in my own life. He's so good. Finally, how did David come back from his sin? How did he you know, embrace that restoration that was waiting for him? He chose to place his identity not in what he did, but in who God said he was. What I love about David, the man after God's heart, is that even after this episode with Bathsheba, he was still the man after God's heart. That's who God said he was. And so that's who he believed and claimed to be. I'm not defined by my mistakes. I'm not defined by my past. I'm not defined by my failures. I'm defined by who he says I am. That's the gospel. That's the good news, is that the slate is wiped clean beautifully clean and he says this is who you are my beloved my son my daughter my child my chosen one you are precious in my sight I have so much so much more for you something so greater for you don't let the enemy place your value or your identity in what you've done friend I'm telling you right now the issue of your value was settled at the cross it was settled at the cross 
You're not the sum of your actions. Man, you are the prized owner and recipient of the goodness and grace of God. Amen? Amen. So I'll invite you to stand on up. Stand on up. And we're going to sing a, a song. We already sang it this morning. But we're just going to reprise this thing. And we're going to sing it out with everything we have in us. Because I believe that the Father is singing over us this morning. And we've called this series The Pursuit, right? David, the man in pursuit after God. But I, I think and I believe that the Lord today is wanting to flip that, friends. And he's saying, yes, you pursue me, but guess what? I am pursuing you. I am in pursuit of every single one of you right here, right now. And I'm chasing you down. And I'm going to overwhelm you with my never-ending, relentless love. So let's sing.